0: We are back in John chapter 12 this morning, and tell you right up front, this is a difficult passage in John 12. If you haven't read ahead, I'll go ahead and give you that word of warning to begin with. Um, the words and the grammar are clear; um, they, they are not incomprehensible in any way. The trouble is when we comprehend what's being said here. It's not always easy for us to appreciate what is being said here and to embrace it. In John 12, 37 to 41, we're going to go through the whole rest of John 12, but in particular, the four verses, 37 through 41, John is answering a question that has lingered in the minds of his readers since the beginning of the book. It is something that has come up, early on in John chapter 1 he declares Jesus to be the Messiah that Jesus is the one who is the son of God who is God in flesh who comes to rescue his people from darkness he says that in Jesus there is life and only in Jesus is there life and people must come to Jesus to receive life and yet in John 1, 11 he says that Jesus came to his own and his own people Did not receive him. So here is Jesus Christ coming as the long awaited Messiah for Israel, the one that they have been anticipating through the Old Testament prophets, who has come to be the Savior, who has gone from Judea on up through Galilee, and who has proclaimed himself to be the one sent from God, who does miracles, who preaches with power, and yet Israel rejects him. As John 1.11 said, would indeed be the case. And that prompts the question, why? Why did Israel reject its Messiah with such clear messianic expectations? You read the Old Testament prophets. There is a long-awaited one. They, They anticipate his coming. Why did they reject Jesus Christ? John, we know, wrote the gospel as as sort of an extended evangelistic tract, if you will. He says it in John chapter 20, that these things have been written so that you might believe in who Jesus says he is. You might believe he is the Christ, and that by believing, you might have life in his name. And so John is very plain. I'm writing this so that you would embrace Jesus Christ, that you would embrace him as the Messiah, as the Savior, and that you might have life in his name. By the time he wrote this in the last part of the first century, there were no doubt people who were reading John's gospel who were objecting and saying, well, why should I believe this? I've got grandparents who, who lived at the time of Jesus, and they didn't believe in Jesus. Uh, I've got the religious leaders, the priests, the scribes, the ones who studied the Old Testament prophecies. They rejected Jesus, and they said he should be crucified. So why should I believe this? Explain all of that. The, the fact that the nation of Israel, the one to whom God sent his son to be the Messiah, the fact that the nation of Israel rejected the Messiah, Jesus Christ, would seem to leave unbelievers with sort of a, an option to say, well, something was wrong. There, something was wrong with Jesus, something was wrong with what he preached, because, listen, we we believe like any good faithful Jew of the first century that the Messiah is coming, but it must not have been him. So why did they reject him? Why is it that we go from those adoring crowds who wanted him to be king to those who wanted him crucified and then to generations after that who say, no, he's, he's not our Messiah? By the time Paul wrote Romans, which was probably Prior to John writing the Gospel of John, John's probably the last writer of a gospel after Matthew, Mark, and Luke had been written. So by the time Paul wrote Romans, he's dealing with it in Romans. He's dealing with objections in Romans 9 through 11 coming from people who say, didn't God set out to save the Jewish people? Aren't you, Paul, you you know this. As as a follower of, of the Torah, of the Old Testament, you know that God set out to set them, and so apparently... God's plan failed. The Messiah came and he was rejected. And so Paul deals with that as well. Here in John 12, that is the the problem, the question that is being addressed in verses 37 to 41. So let me pick up where we left off last week. Jesus is speaking, verse 36, and we'll read down through verse 41. Jesus says, while you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him, so that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. For again Isaiah said, He has blind at their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. So this whole section is really triggered by the response of the crowd in verse 37. We understand the practical reasons, because we talked about them last week of what's going on here, and that is that that the Jews are looking for this political military rescuer, and Jesus is putting himself forth as the Savior who is sent to save them from their sins. And so verse 37 says they, they turn, they reject him, but... But why? Why were their expectations so off-base that they could not see in Jesus this Messiah? Even if he came with what they thought was a different plan, why still would they reject him when he had preached so clearly, had performed miracles right before their eyes? Keep in mind, John says at the very end of this gospel, the last verse of John is, is him saying, and by the way, the stuff that I put here was just scratching the surface. Jesus did so many more miracles. There was so much more that there isn't enough space to fill it up with. And so there was abundant eyewitness testimony to the person of Jesus Christ as being the Son of God, as being the Messiah. And yet they are stubbornly persistent in their unbelief. Verse 37 again, they still did not believe in him. The English, when it says still did not, is trying to capture the fact that this isn't a simple past tense in the Greek, and they didn't believe, it's saying they, they just, this is the pattern, this was their ongoing state at this point. They stubbornly said, no, we do not believe in Jesus, and they persisted in unbelief. For the better part of three years, Jesus had presented himself as Messiah, he had given ample evidence of his claims, he had preached, he had done miracles, even to the point of raising the dead, and yet the nation says, no, how is that possible? And That's what John's addressing here. He states the fact of their unbelief in verse 37 when he says, even though Jesus did all of these signs, they persisted in not believing in him, and then He tells us the foretelling of their unbelief. That's when he takes us back to Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53, if you've never read it, is as clear a prophecy of the coming of Jesus Christ as any in the Old Testament. It is a prophecy of the the death of Jesus Christ for the sins of his people. It it clearly describes him as a lamb being led to slaughter, as one who would bear the sins of his people. It speaks even of his burial and his resurrection in Isaiah 53. And so 700 years before Jesus Christ, there is this foretelling of the coming of Jesus the Lamb of God, of the coming of this one who would save his people. And yet Isaiah 53, 1, the first verse of Isaiah 53, is what John quotes here in John 12. Who has believed what he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? When Isaiah says that, in his context, there's some... Immediate fulfillment of that in the sense of people not listening to what is being preached then, even though the power of God is, is before them. But John takes that into John chapter 12 and re-quotes Isaiah 53.1 to apply it to Jesus Christ. Who has heard the message, the preaching of Jesus? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? The arm speaking, it's an imagery of power. And so it's talking about both his preaching and his miraculous power. And all of that has been displayed in the Messiah. And John quotes it here and essentially puts it forth as a rhetorical question. How could God's power be displayed so clearly in word and deed and yet We just saw in verse 37, they didn't believe it. Well, the real challenge for us really is when verse 38 starts with the words, so that. It says, they still did not believe him in verse 37, so that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. New American Standard says, for this cause. John is saying that the nation of Israel did not believe in Jesus so that the prophecy of Isaiah might be fulfilled. There are some commentaries that go through all sorts of grammatical, linguistic gymnastics at this point to try to do away with the so that, because they understand the implications of that and the difficulty we might have with that statement. Because if it's saying what it seems to be saying, they did not believe in him, so that the words of the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled, then we are seeing that, Israel rejected Jesus in order that God's prophecy through Isaiah would be fulfilled. That what God said would actually take place. And so that would seem to be a cause, if not the cause, of Israel's unbelief as God's prophecy because he said so. Now that might make you a little uncomfortable. And if it does, let me suggest it'll get harder before it gets easier as we go through this. And the harder part is verse 39, which then says, therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, and he quotes from Isaiah chapter 6. We've seen the fact of Israel's rejection of its unbelief. They saw the signs, they did not believe in verse 37. We saw the foretelling in verse 38, where Isaiah 53 is used to say this was a prophecy that they would not get it. They would not understand it, and respond. And so at this point, when verse 39 says, therefore, they could not believe, we're now at the point where it is impossible to set God entirely outside of this discussion. As human beings, sometimes what we want to do at this point is say, it's just all on Israel, and it's all on Israel's free will, and they had the option, and by their free will, they rejected him. But it is really difficult at this point to take God out of the equation because clearly God is at work in this and he is accomplishing his purposes. I need you to turn to Isaiah chapter 6. We'll come back to John chapter 12 because I, wanna, I just want you to see what it is that John is pointing back to when he refers to Isaiah 6 and what the context is and what's going on here. Let me, let me say this, though, as you're turning there to bear in mind. These verses, John 12, what we'll see in Isaiah as well, are not designed to tell us what happens in the hearts of individual unbelievers when it talks about they did this so that or they could not. the, The point here is not teaching sort of an anthropology thing here of what goes on in the heart of an individual unbelievers. John and Isaiah are very specifically addressing the question of the nation of Israel. God has sent his Messiah, His Redeemer for the people that he chose for himself, and they reject him. And so John and Isaiah are giving us an answer to that question. Why does the nation? Because as far as individual unbelievers go, and we'll talk about this again later, there's always a remnant. There's always a group within this that still comes to faith and obedience to him. The issue here is, did God's plan fail? If God set his affection on Israel and chose Israel, and now Israel, the Messiah comes, and Israel says, We don't want him, crucify him, what happened? How does it get to that point? So here in Isaiah 6, God gives to Isaiah this, at the beginning of the chapter, this glorious vision of the presence of God. Isaiah sees God in his holiness. He stands in awe of God. He is convicted about his own sin. He, he, he ex- explains, speaks of his own sin, confesses his own sin. God forgives him. And then in verse 8 of Isaiah 6, it says, And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? Then I, Isaiah, said, Here I am, send me. And he said, God now to Isaiah, this is his commission to ministry, Go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull, and their ears heavy, and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. Imagine that as a calling for ministry. Imagine that being the, the here's, here's, what, here's what you're called to do. You will preach the word, and it will close people's eyes to the truth. That's not exactly encouraging as any kind of call to, to serve the Lord, and yet that is what God says to Isaiah at this point. Tell them to hear, but not understand. Tell them to see, and yet not perceive. As you preach, it will make their hearts hard to truth, and they will be unresponsive to what they hear. That is a sober calling. Go and preach to an already unbelieving and rebellious people, knowing that your preaching will harden them in their unbelief. Turn back to chapter 1 of Isaiah. Let's put this in proper setting and context. Isaiah's call to ministry. Isaiah is called to preach to the nation of Judah, It's the region that surrounds Jerusalem. Lists in verse 1 of Isaiah 1 various kings to give us a chronology in Judah. So in what days it was that Isaiah is preaching to Judah, specifically to the the kings who sit in Jerusalem. And then verse 2. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. So in other words, all of you bear witness. Here's the message. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know, my people do not understand. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly, they have forsaken the Lord, they have despised the Holy One of Israel, they are utterly estranged. So in God's call to Isaiah, remember again that he had laid out that you're going to preach this message to them and it will serve to harden their hearts. It's important to see that calling in the sequence of what is already happening in the context of what's already taken place. God did not make Israel guilty so that he could then harden their hearts in unbelief as punishment. The nation, by its own wickedness and rebellion, made itself guilty before God. The nation had already disobeyed and turned from and rebelled against God. Look at what God, how he describes them here when he calls heaven and earth to bear witness. The first thing he says is, children I have reared and brought up. These are my my children. I I, have loved them. I have brought them up. I, I have taken them to be my own. And I have nurtured them and cared for them. And now... They act like they don't, they not only don't know that I exist, they've gone after other idols and other gods. Oxen perceive their master better than the people of Israel perceive their God. That's the description that he gives here. Similar picture is in Ezekiel 16, passage you can read on your own as you have time, but Ezekiel 16 pictures sort of God's calling of Israel. And and, and the picture is of Israel as being this this infant baby girl that has been cast out, that is unwanted, that is sort of the the historic uh, version of, of abortion, if you will, where this child is not wanted, she is thrown out into the wilderness and left there to die. And Ezekiel 16 pictures God is coming and taking this this baby girl, and taking it as his own, and, it, and it taking as she is writhing on the ground and about to die, God takes this unwanted child to be his own, and nurtures her, and dresses her, and raises her, and loves her, and cherishes her. It's a beautiful picture in Ezekiel 16, and, and it describes Israel as growing in splendor. Beautiful nation. And it is what we've seen historically. It isn't that God, that that Israel somehow out of all the nations of the earth was more appealing or more attractive. It is that God chose this one that was as rebellious against him as all others and made it his own. And he made it glorious in a land flowing with milk and honey, and he blessed it. But Ezekiel 16, 15 says, but you trusted in your beauty and played the whore because of your fame. Ezekiel saying, this is what you did. You did. God took you as an infant, and he raised you and loved you and cherished you, and now you have not not just turned your back on him, but you have now gone and and given yourself over to all of these pagan nations around and all of their gods. You've done what we've seen throughout Israel's history where they look at the Canaanite nations and the the worship of rocks and trees, and and they say, let's worship that god and that god and let's marry with that nation and, and take on their god. They don't simply just turn from God, but they actually embrace idolatry. They embrace the worst of what surrounds them in their pagan neighbors. They dismissed God's generous mercy without even a hint of remorse. Yes, there was a remnant of people who were saved. Ezekiel and Isaiah certainly as an example and others who trusted in the Lord. But the picture that Isaiah gives and that Ezekiel gives is like a a, a child who is abandoned by his parents and, and the parent, parents go and they adopt this child out, out of an orphanage. They come and they, they, they pick this child and they love this child and they do everything they can for this child. And one day this child takes all of that love and kindness and grace and says, I hate you. I don't want to be here anymore. I'm going to live my own life, and I reject you and everything you stand for, and I will go on with my life and never look back at you. That's the, the picture that Isaiah and Ezekiel are giving to us, is God is speaking to the nation he chose, adopted, and cherished, and they not only walked away from him, but they eagerly sought out gods that they could pledge themselves to instead of him, that they could worship instead. That's the background to Isaiah chapter 6, right? That's what precedes Isaiah's call to ministry. After God had shown his love and his mercy and it had been spurned again and again, God then determines that Isaiah's preaching will be used as a tool of judgment. God preaches, and there is invitation in that preaching, and there is appeal in that preaching. There is also a time when God's word can be a form of judgment, on those who have spurned him again and again. God is just. God would not be God if he ignored sin, if he allowed sin and rebellion to go unpunished. So as a consequence of Israel's years of rebellion and idolatry, the preaching of Isaiah would have the effect of hardening the hearts of Israel, of essentially saying to them, you have have gone this direction, You have, as as Ezekiel says, hoard after all of these other gods and other nations, therefore, you have it. That that is the route you now go, and and you go on in that way, and when you hear preaching, the preaching of the truth, it will only turn you further away. Theologians call this, not a a biblical term, but a theological description to try to explain it, of judicial hardening. The idea that, that there is... There is in God's capacity for justice a divine judgment against stubborn rebellion that leads to a hardening of the unbelieving heart. Let's be really clear about this so that we don't say more than, than what the text is saying. God does not randomly choose nations or individuals, for that matter, for unbelief. Unbelief is the natural state of every human being as we come into life. We are born as sinners. We are born as rebels against God and our intent and our thoughts and our nature and the actions that follow are against God and for self. That is how we begin, and it is only by God's grace rescuing us from that that self-intended destruction It is only by His grace that we are redeemed from out of that. We did not, none of us, start out morally good or even morally neutral and then sort of got turned aside by our circumstances and other people. We all came into life as rebels against our Creator. Scripture says it again and again. 1 Kings 8.46 says there's no one who does not sin. David in Psalm 51.5, we are sinful from the womb is the description there. Romans 5.10, apart from Christ, which is the state of all people until they are saved, a person is hostile to God. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Ephesians 4.18, unbelievers are darkened in their understanding and alienated from the life of God. We all entered life as sinners by nature and by action under the judgment of God and on a road bound for hell, and it is only by God's grace that any of us have been rescued from off of that road, that he has saved us from that and made us his own. God does not capriciously pick sinners to harden their hearts, but God does do what we see here at certain points in history. And this is something that is, is in the mind and the counsel of God, and we only know as God reveals in what he does here with Israel in hardening their hearts. God had showed his mercy and his love and held out his truth and repeatedly urged Israel to run to him and be saved. But this rebellious nation despised and rejected him. And at some point in his righteous judgment, God determined that the preaching of his truth from that point on would only harden the nation in its unbelief, would only serve to to stop up their ears so that they would hear and yet not understand to the point that when their Messiah comes, they are sinfully desiring a political military ruler and they reject Jesus because he doesn't fit their definition of what the Messiah should be. They don't want one who's come to save them from their sins because they don't even see that as the issue because their hearts have grown so hard at this point. And the preaching of Jesus and the miracles of Jesus only serve to do what John describes. And so when Isaiah 6 is putting all of these things forth, preach, preach tell them to listen and not hear, to to see and not perceive, preach that it hardens their hearts. When it's all commands in Isaiah 6, it is now explanation in John 12. Because it's now been fulfilled. And so when you come back to John 12, verse 40, it says, They could not believe, for he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. By the time we get back to John 12, it's saying that the judgment of God against the persistent, stubborn idolatry and rebellion of the nation of Israel has now gotten to the place where God is judged and is hardening their hearts. In their unbelief against him. Through Jesus Christ, the nation of Israel experienced the judicial hardening that God had promised 700 years earlier through the prophet Isaiah. Now, let's be really clear here. Did that then somehow prevent all Jews from embracing Jesus Christ as Savior? Of course not. When we see the birth of the church, We've seen it already just in Mary's worship of Jesus and in others. And and the birth of the church in the book of Acts is born out of thousands of Jewish people who come to embrace Jesus Christ as Savior. The point, again, though, is the nation. John is not dealing with individual unbelievers, but he's answering the question of how is it that a nation and its, its smartest minds and its greatest leaders and all of its religious class and then all of these people flowing on down from that how is it that they don't see this and they reject their messiah and that's what he's dealing with here as a fulfillment of God's promise in John 12 verse 41 of John 12 back there again says Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him just a, a kind of a point that I think might help us as as we think about this with Isaiah. How does, how, how does someone like Isaiah do ministry when God's, God's description of ministry is, you're going to go preach, and they're going to hear you, but they won't understand. They're going to see what you're saying, and they won't perceive it. You're going to preach, and it's going to harden their hearts. What drives you? What, what gets you up in the morning to do that kind of ministry when you've essentially been told, in human terms, your ministry will fail wildly, Isaiah. If, if you're looking for numbers and to have people come and, and gather around and listen and believe, that's not going to happen. And so how is that, that, that you, could, you could go through this? Because Isaiah, remember, right before his call, has that stunning vision of the glory of God. Because Isaiah is given a glimpse in the presence of God, of the holiness and greatness of God, and he is brought to his knees by his own sin and the grace of a forgiving God, and says, here am I, send me, whatever. And what the whatever is isn't going to be easy, right? And yet he is ready to go. Even when ministry in human terms would be a failure, Isaiah still was driven forward by the glory of God. It changed him. It allowed Isaiah to go to his own people, knowing that his preaching would be rejected because he had this vision. In fact, the interesting thing about his vision is John tells us that that we didn't really get from Isaiah. When verse 41 says, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him, who is he talking about? Well, verse 42 says, nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him. So John's letting us know that Isaiah may not even fully have grasped it at that point, but he was getting a vision of the pre-incarnate Son of God. He was seeing Jesus before Jesus took on flesh and became a man and came to earth. And so Isaiah saw the glory of the Son before Jesus became a man, and he is compelled by that glory to preach what God tells him to preach, even when he is assured that that preaching will lead to more rejection. Of God's truth. Keep that in mind, what Isaiah does as a response to the glory of God when you read these next couple of verses 42. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him, Jesus, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. That is a remarkable contrast in what he has just told us about the courage of Isaiah that came from the glory of God, witnessing the glory of God and stepping forth into a ministry that is doomed to unpopularity and failure. Now to these who have been in the presence of the Son of God and have heard the Son of God and have seen the Son of God and and intellectually know that they cannot dispute the evidence and yet will not declare the glory of the Son of God because they are more concerned about their own glory. They're far more interested in their own popularity and losing a place of prominence in the synagogue. And what is so appalling is verse 43 saying that they loved the praise they got from people rather than the praise from God. The Greek word doxin is glory. It is the same word in 41 when it speaks of Isaiah seeing his glory as it is in 43 when it says they love the glory from man more than the glory that comes from God. That is, is, John is just drawing this painful contrast here to make the point that Isaiah saw the glory of Christ and was compelled to do ministry to people that he knew would reject it and would despise him. And these Jewish religious leaders saw the power of Christ and were willing to conceal the glory of God in order to save their own glory. Wanted praise for themselves more than they cared about the glory of God. They wanted a high approval rating from people, even if it meant diminishing the greatness of God. I think the question for all of us at that point is, have you ever ever done that or been tempted to do that? To conceal the greatness of the glory of God in your life because of a fear of man. That temptation that if I start to talk about Jesus in this setting, they're going to think I'm crazy. If I start sharing the gospel, they're not going to want to, Be friends with me anymore. If I I speak about something that is the glory of God, what will they think of me? Will I I not be popular with them anymore? Fear of man is, is an enslaving lust for approval, and that is what these religious leaders see in Jesus' power. They hear truth. They know it's indisputable, and yet they will not say it for fear of losing that approval. Let me just read the last of this. I know we're running late. I'm going to read 44 down through the end of the chapter and just highlight a couple of points for you as we go through this, and then we'll we'll be finished on this. Verse 44, and Jesus cried out and said, "'Whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me, and whoever sees me sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness.' If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. So, John gives us this as one last message of Jesus. We know from verse 36 that it says that after Jesus had said these things, he went off and hid himself. So, it's not clear exactly chronologically how this fits in. We're we're somewhere around probably Monday or Tuesday of that that Passion Week, that week leading up to the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. It would seem that what John has done here is, is taken perhaps an earlier message of Jesus and sort of placed it in here because... This is sort of the turning point of the gospel. When we get on to chapter 13, it'll be Jesus and his disciples from here on out. The public ministry, saving, of course, the crucifixion, the public ministry has come to a close. This is the end of his preaching and his declaration to the people. He will now focus on girding up his disciples for the days ahead. And so it would seem as if John is, in all likelihood, taking one earlier message of Jesus and as the summary... And as the conclusion to all of this public ministry, putting it at this point, it is a response to the unbelief of the crowd, back in verse 37. It is also a response to the cowardice of these Jewish leaders. John gives this one final call to faith directly from the words of Jesus. Just three pieces of this that I just want to make sure you catch. The first one is how Jesus begins. Whoever believes in me whoever believes. If any of what we looked at earlier in John 12, just those previous verses about the issue of God hardening hearts, if if any of that tempts you to think that God somehow has no desire to save sinners or somehow that absolves you of the responsibility to proclaim the gospel because God will have mercy on whom he has mercy and hardens whom he hardens, therefore God's sovereign, so I don't need to do anything, then Go to the next message that John gives from Jesus that begins, whoever believes in me. He is inviting. He is appealing. He is urging again faith. Here is Jesus following right in the model of what Isaiah did preaching to a nation that he knows will not only reject him, but will crucify him, and he is still appealing to them with words of invitation to believe in me, believe in who I say I am. I am the light, I have come to give life, come to me, and whoever believes in me will find life. Whoever will run from the darkness and trust in Christ will be saved. Friends, we are not privy to the specific intricacies of the mind of God when it comes to any hardening of any hearts. So John, again, is answering this objection when he talks about this hardening. It is not for us to extrapolate from out of that and say, well, my so-and-so family member who has cursed the name of Jesus for years and hates God, they must be hardened in their unbelief and therefore done. You know, I, I have no responsibility there. there there's, scripture doesn't call us to that place. This, goes, this is the mind, the just and righteous mind of God that John is describing this to exalt the fact that God's plans did not fail. But what God may do in any hardening of any hearts is based on his justice and his mercy. That's why Romans 9 is having to respond. Paul's having to respond to this charge and say, well, wait a minute. If you're saying God hardens hearts, that's not fair, that, that God is wrong, and he can't do that, and that's not right. And so Romans nine eighteen says, so then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills, saying God is sovereign and just. Romans 9, right? And then you get to Romans 10, and what's the message? They need to hear the gospel. How will they know unless a preacher is sent? And he must, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach good news. So he moves immediately from, yes, God is sovereign. Praise him for that, that he is just and righteous, but know that he has imparted to us this gospel, and we are to go and to proclaim it to whomever. That's the first part. Second thing in this section is, is if you notice in Jesus' appeal in this section, He actually gets back to the heart of the doctrine that is the point of stumbling for the Jewish people since the beginning of his ministry. The thing that has so angered the Jews and turned them away from Jesus since the beginning of Jesus' preaching is this claim that I and the Father are one. When you see me, you see the Father, right? This is, that's the point that we saw them pick up stones earlier to want to kill him because they understood as they listened to Jesus, he's actually claiming to be God. He can't do that. That's blasphemy. And so that's been the stumbling block that the Jews have used against him, that Jesus repeatedly identifies himself as equal with God the Father. What does he do in this message? First, he says, whoever believes in me, And then he goes on to equate himself again because he says, whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. Whoever sees me sees him who sent me. You believe in me, you're believing in the one who sent me. You see me, you're seeing the Father. You hear me, you're hearing the Father. So in the face of rejection... Here's here's where we get tempted, right, with fear of man. We know that somebody doesn't want to hear this particular thing about sin or this element about Jesus Christ, and so we're sort of tempted to to sort of back down on some of the hard stuff of the gospel and not go through on the full gospel because we don't want to really push them away. And here is Jesus in the face of a nation that is prepared to crucify him, and his final message to them is, oh, by the way, I and the Father, when you see me, you've seen the Father. When you hear me, you are hearing the Father. I am speaking as as the Father is speaking. Everything I do and say, because he's claiming equality with God again. One last time, he is making it abundantly clear that what's about to happen, this is fundamental to the cross, because what's about to happen is not some just some rabbi from Galilee who's doing some humanitarian deed or showing some example of love. It is God himself bearing the punishment for the sins of his people. And so the Son of God became the Lamb of God to receive the wrath of God in order to save a people for himself. And here again, he is just being abundantly clear about what he is claiming. Last part I just want you to see in this is just his emphasis on the word, particularly verses 47 and 48. You hear my words and don't keep them. I don't judge, for I didn't come to judge the one who rejects me and does not receive my words as a judge. What's the judge? The word that I have spoken. will judge him on the last day. The power of the gospel to both save and to condemn. Jesus did speak in chapter 5 of himself as a judge, that God the Father had given authority into his hands. He also said in John three seventeen, God did not send his son into the world to condemn, but in order that the world might be saved through him. It is the gospel message. It is the proclamation of truth declared by Jesus Christ that ultimately has the power to save and to condemn. It is what you do with the gospel, which is why Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the power of the, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And he goes on later in Romans 1 and says, those who suppress the truth in unrighteousness are judged and are condemned. It it, it is... Jesus making clear in this final appeal that those who are saved are those who believe and respond to God's truth. They don't give mere intellectual assent. Remember, the Jewish leaders did that. The Jewish leaders said, yeah, this guy is, he's remarkable, and he's godlike in so many ways. I mean, he's done things we can't explain. This isn't just magic. There's something to this guy. And yet, they would not respond. They would not ultimately rest their lives in his. They saw indisputable evidence, but that did not lead them to faith and repentance because they wanted to keep their influence. If you believe that Jesus is who he claims to be and that he died on the cross to take the punishment for your sin in his body, that he rose from the dead, conquering sin and death, then rest your life in him. Believe in him. Trust in him. Guard that truth, value, cherish what he has done and, and that gospel message as the most valuable thing in your life because you have a Savior who gave himself as a lamb in your place and took your sin. Believe in him. Jesus said keep his words. That's what he says in verse 47. He gives the contrary. If anyone hears them and does not keep them, the word judges him. To keep is to guard. What, what sort of things do you guard? What sort of things do you, do you put in the safe? other than the the gun safe that that you might have? Uh, I'm talking about valuables that you cherish, right? What are the things that you just treasure above all else that you cherish? What is it then that when people look at your life, they see you treasure above all else? That they see you keep and hold and guard when they see your actions and they see that all of life might be a mess and yet you are holding fast to the Lord Jesus Christ and the gospel. Think of Job, right? Lose everything, and yet he held fast to God. He trusted in God. Do they see that in your life, that you are, you are holding fast? That same glory of God is what compels Isaiah to to go past the fear of man, past the fear of undertaking a doomed ministry, and preach God's word to a stubborn people. That same glory of Christ that John saw is what has John on some remote island having been exiled so that he is by himself with no fellowship and no companionship, and what is he doing? He is still writing furiously letters about the love of Jesus Christ and the encouragement of God so that he can feed the sheep and spread the glory of God back to the churches and say, look, 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 look. love Jesus, hold fast to Jesus. Do you hear and obey and treasure gospel truths? Do you believe that in them is life itself for you and for your hearers? If you do, then treasure it and speak it and guard it and live it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your magnificent glory that you are holy and above all else. We thank you that your Son displays that glory to us that he did to Isaiah and and to John. And, And through these written words, we see the glory of the Son of God. Thank you for saving people from sin. Thank you for all here who are trusting in Christ, for rescuing us from the wrath that we deserve for our sinfulness, for leading us to repentance and to faith. Father, we pray, we pray for loved ones, for family members, for friends, for colleagues, for neighbors, that you would give us a heart of compassion for them. Lord, that we would, like Isaiah and like John, long to share with them the glory of Christ, that we would want them to to get a glimpse of the Savior, both in our lives and in our words. Help us to be people who adore Christ and the gospel and who treasure these truths and that people would see how we cherish and guard them. Lord, we pray that you would save any listening today who, who have yet to bow before Jesus and call him Savior, would today be the day that you would open their eyes, that you would give them life, that you would cause them to repent and believe and embrace the Savior. Father, thank you for the glorious work you do in saving sinners as a people for your very own. Cause us, as we sing now, to have the opportunity to share in proclaiming your great glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen.